Jeff, thank you so much for that song that goes so well with our service. You know, one of the skills that music ministers develop over time is the ability to know the hymnody of a church well enough so that that hymnody can support the sermon. So, Jeff, thank you for your skill in this area. It serves as well. Friends, we are uh, in our summer series through the book of Judges. Today, we'll finish up the story of Samson in Judges 16. I would encourage you to open up your Bible and leave it open to that chapter as we'll not begin our service, our sermon with a reading from that passage, but uh, much of the passage will be read throughout the sermon. What sin in your life are you currently putting to death? Which sin in your life are you daily praying to the Lord for deliverance? Puritan theologian John Owen famously said in his book, The Mortification of Sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The killing of sin is an active, daily, fundamental aspect of the Christian life. The person who comfortably lives with sin cannot call himself a Christian. Radical statement? Yes, but not mine. The Bibles. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But what exactly is sin? Is sin merely doing wrong things? Is sin only related to behavior? And why is sin so enticing? Sometimes we can be so familiarized with some theological concepts that we fail to think deeply about them. If we don't know what sin is, we will not be able to fight sin well. And if sin is our great enemy, we would do well in knowing our enemy well. Victory over sin does not happen when our behaviors are modified, but when our desires are changed. Sin happens at a heart level, and our hearts are guided by our desires. So our greatest weapon to fight sin is not primarily self-control, but love. When our hearts learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates, sin begins to fade and righteousness flourishes. This is our eighth sermon through the book of the Judges, and we're only two sermons away from finishing the whole book. The book of Judges is a book of warriors who fought to save Israel from their enemies. We have seen throughout this book six minor judges and six major judges. The number 12 is symbolic and important. It's a symbol of completion. Samson is the last judge 
in this book. Throughout this book, we've seen Israel go through what is called the judge's cycle, a cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. We've also seen that as we progress throughout the book, the judges and the people increase in their godlessness. We call this moral decadence. Israel was to be a light post to the nations so that the nations could learn the way of the Lord. But instead, the nations, especially the peoples of Canaan and their false gods, created a home in Israel's heart. So we've seen progressively throughout this book the canonization of Israel. Israel is becoming like Canaan. We met Samson last week. He is the last of the judges. He is also the most important of the judges. The, Jude, the book of Judges reserves four entire chapters for the life of Samson. And arguably, Samson is the main human character in this book. Unlike other judges, Samson was not a military leader. He was a lone ranger. He did not lead an army. He was the army itself. It's important that we see that in Israel's leadership, everything is beginning to funnel through one man. And this story of Samson points us forward to the great need that Israel had for a king like David. And ultimately, for the great need that we all have for a king like Christ. Samson is also the most immoral of all the judges. He demonstrates very little reliance on God and barely acknowledges him throughout the book or throughout his story. He has a low view of holiness. He has a fascination for Gentile country and ungodly, unbelieving foreign women, which would ultimately lead to his destruction. Last week we saw the birth of Satan, oh, not Satan, of Samson announced. And we saw that from birth he was to be a Nazarite. He was to take the Nazarite vow which would restrict him from touching a dead body, from drinking alcohol, and from cutting his hair. But we've already seen him break two of these requirements. We also saw his marriage to the Philistine woman that in many ways set him up as an enemy of the Philistines. So God, through his spirit, gave Samson great victories over his enemy. We said last week that out of all the judges, in some ways, Samson was the, the most unlike Christ. However, in some ways, no other judge points us to Christ like Samson. So they would consider Samson's relationship to a Philistine woman called Delilah. 
a relationship that would lead ultimately to his death, but also to his victory. Today, three words are going to guide us through the text. The words are temptation, tragedy, and triumph. So let's consider first Samson's temptation. The word temptation is often thrown around casually, perhaps often even in a positive way. When someone proposes some fun activity, we say, well, that sounds tempting. Food can be tempting. Vacation can be tempting. Sleep can be tempting. The temptations are a vocal band who sang sweet songs like My Girl. But according to the Bible, there is nothing sweet about temptation. Temptation is Satan's tool to lead man to eternal death. Samson really showed little concern for the temptation that surrounded him. Just as we saw last week, Samson had a sinful obsession for the Philistine city of Timnah. There he found ungodly companions and an ungodly wife. Now Samson is obsessed with another Philistine city, the city of Gaza. In verse 1, he goes to Gaza, and he's there again, chasing a woman, chasing a prostitute. Well, Samson is a puzzling figure. The men of Gaza knew that Samson was there, so they set up an ambush for him. But Samson, in the middle of the night, storms the gates of the city as one storms the gates of hell. And he carries them for over 40 miles uphill to Mount Hebron. A Philistine city gate would be made out of metal, heavy. These gates would often be taller than a two-story building. And they were deeply fixed to the ground. Samson was gifted with incredible strength especially when he fought against the enemies of God. We saw three times last week that the Spirit rushed into Samson, and Samson was able to accomplish great things. We're going to see Samson struggle greatly and gravely in this chapter with his sin, but don't forget what we saw last week about his enticement with the Philistines, we read in Judges 14.4 that after his father and mother tried to convince him not to marry the Philistine woman, we're told that his father and mother did not know that this involvement with the Philistines, though sinful, was from the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God did not cause Samson to sin, but he appointed Samson to have victory over the Philistines. The real enemies 
are the Philistines. And Samson, with his strengths and weaknesses, is still an instrument in God's hand for the salvation of his people. This is good news. Because if Samson can be used for God's purposes, you and I, who also have strengths and weaknesses, can be used as well. The real battle here is a cosmic battle that has been going on since Genesis 3. It's a battle between the seed of the woman, Samson, and the seed of the serpent, the Philistines. But this battle is not ultimately about Samson and the Philistines, but God and Satan. Samson's struggle with women was so evident that the Philistines knew his weakness. Samson's weaknesses were so evident that the Philistines tailor their war plan to Samson's weakness. And this is the first aspect of the anatomy of temptation. The devil uses temptation with precision. Look at verse 4. After this, he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. It's funny that the text says that he loved because we see no love here, just lust. Whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. You see how they knew? They knew his weakness. And see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. It's hard not to see the parallels with our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now notice how the lords of the Philistines didn't tempt Samson with money or power. Or anything else. No, they knew his weakness. It was like the Philistines knew the algorithm for Samson's heart. Just as advertisers look for our browsing data in order to entice us to buy their products, Satan looks at our heart and tailors our temptations to our desires. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured like a fish to a hook and enticed, how? By his own desires. Desires are God-given gifts. If we had no desire to eat, we would die. If we had no desire to drink, we would die. If we had no desire to sleep, we would die. God gave us desires so our needs could be met. But when sin came into the world, our desires became corrupted. Sin is the perversion of a good desire. The desire of a man for a woman is not intrinsically wrong. 
The desire of a man for his wife is a wonderful thing. But Samson objectified women. And the Philistines knew that. So they enlisted Delilah into the fight. That's what Delilah was all along. She never loved Samson. She was a hired soldier in the Philistine army. Her weapon was her sexuality. Her goal was to lure and entice Samson. In verse 6, Delilah begins enticing Samson. She says, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Delilah is not even trying to hide her motives. She tells him what she wants to know. And the the information that she would like to gather in order to subdue him. She knew Samson's desires were so weak. She didn't even need to disguise her motives. Samson had ample warning that Delilah's intentions were to deceive him. Samson had ample warning that Delilah's intentions were to destroy him. And yet, he falls for her deception. Why? Because she knew he was a slave to his desires. Notice another aspect of the anatomy of temptation. Not only does the devil use temptation precisely, he uses it with persistence. The devil is a specialist at not rushing to accomplish his wicked purposes. He reasons with Eve. Did God really say? And he gives her time to reason herself out of God's word. Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day to be with her. Satan doesn't just tempt Jesus once, but three times. And once he was done, the only reason he left is because he thought he would come back at a more opportune time. Peter is asked three times about Jesus' identity and succumbs to the temptation. The devil uses temptation in a persistent way because he knows we often yield when we are overwhelmed. You know, when you first first start parenting, you have all these idealistic plans. Perfect diet, perfect schedule, absolutely no technology. Then you come to realize that your children come with desires of their own. And friends, no one is more persistent than a child with a strong desire. So at the end of the day, parenting is about teaching our children to desire what is right, rather than restricting activities that we don't find helpful. 
In verse 7, we, see, we start seeing the persistency of Delilah chipping away at Samson's strength. Samson tells her that his strength would be lost if he's bound with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. So she tells the lords of the Philistines the secret. So under her leadership, they lie in an ambush. And she binds him with, with the bowstrings. And when she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, snaps the bowstrings as if they were nothing. But Delilah doesn't give up. She comes back. And in verse 10, he tells her that he needs to be bound with new ropes that have never been bound, been, been used. So she binds them. She binds him with new ropes. And again, she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And again, he snaps the ropes as if they were nothing. But Delilah does not give up. She persists and asks Samson again for the secret of his strength. Now Samson tells her that his strength would leave him if the locks of his hair were weaved and pinned together. Now if you know the whole story, you know that this is not the secret. But we're getting closer. Samson's desire are starting to yield because of Delilah's persistence. Again, Delilah weaved his hair and pinned his hair together and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, but his strength was not gone. Now, perhaps you're saying, how foolish. Samson, do you not realize that she doesn't love you? In modern days, perhaps we would say, Samson, why are you so drawn to this toxic relationship? We could probably think even, I would never be this foolish. But that's not true. How often do we go back to the same sin over and over again, thinking that the results will be different? This time, my anger will produce righteousness. This time, I won't let the conversation turn into gossip. This time, I'll surf the web unmonitored, but I will not look at pornography. This time, I will not get drunk. And we find ourselves succumbing to temptation. We find ourselves succumbing to the lusts of our hearts, just like Samson. Why? Because just like Samson, we often believe ourselves to be too strong and not too weak. So we find ourselves fighting an enemy we can't beat. We often think of sin as a line that we shouldn't cross, so we try to get as close to that line as we can without crossing it. But sin is much more than a line we can't cross. Sin is powerful. 
Sin is like a vacuum. Sin is like a rip current, a black hole that will have increasing power over us the more we come close to it. Satan doesn't want to win the war overnight. What he wants is for us to believe that there is no war. He wants us to believe that the boat we need to hop on in our Christian life is the cruise ship and not the battleship. He wants to lure our desires without us noticing his schemes at all. Well, friends, we're at war. And a soldier who enters a war believing that there is no war is doomed. We're in the middle of a cosmic battle and our enemy is powerful. Much more powerful than us. But we have Jesus on our side. So we don't face him thinking that we are strong We face the devil relying on the power of Christ, who is strong. Be strong in the Lord. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice that James is connecting here, winning the battle against the devil, with an imperative. Resist the devil. You resist the devil. So it is not wrong for us to understand that relying on Christ takes action. The gospel is believing, but it is believing that leads to action. We resist the devil when we actively distance ourselves from temptation. And this requires faith. Do you struggle with drug, with drugs or alcoholism? If so, by faith, when you get home today, pour out every bottle of alcohol down the drain and get rid of any drug that you have access to. Tell a brother or sister about your sin. It requires faith to do that. Do you look at pornography? If so, let people who love you know about your sin. Ask for them to keep you accountable. Do not have unmonitored access to the internet. Get rid of your smartphone. Oh, but my job requires me to have a smartphone. Quit your job. It's better for you to enter heaven without an eye or without a hand than to lose your life to the sins of this world. Add accountability software to every device you use. Do you gossip? Stop associating with people who gossip. You know how gossip starts? When conversations go longer than they should. That's when gossip starts. And we need to have the strength to say, this conversation is over. I love you. We'll talk again soon. When someone brings up gossip to you, stop and say, let's go talk to this person directly. Instead of gossiping, come to the Wednesday evening prayer meeting and replace gossip with prayer. That is much better 
1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted before your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Okay, here's what we need. Escape. That you may be able to endure it. But unfortunately, Samson does not escape the temptation. He gives in. And this was tragic. So let us consider the tragedy. The Lord designed this world to be a life-giving world. But sin introduced death. Samson experienced life in incredible ways, his strength, his vitality, his special call. But he ultimately chose death. We just read James 1.14. Now listen to James 1.15. Then desire, when it, has when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, Brings forth death. Notice the word that begins to appear in verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart, Samson, is not with me? The word heart, referring to Samson's heart here, will appear four times. Once here, then again in verse 17, and then twice in verse 18. Delilah pressed Samson so hard that he gave her his whole heart. The man who could kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey could not tame his own heart. The heart in the Bible is the center of a person, his essence, his whole being. The heart is where desires come from. Whatever we give our hearts to, that will be our source of life. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Samson did not keep his heart with all Vigilance. He grew too comfortable with temptation. He could have escaped, but he chose not to because he desired the lust of his heart. Samson believed that he could draw life from lust. But Delilah to him became a sentence of death. Friends, do not give your heart do not give your passions. Do not give your desires to the lust of the flesh. Do not teach your hearts to love and desire that which the Lord calls evil. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Colossians 3, 5-6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
Samson failed to understand the gravity of sin. He thought he could keep his sin as a pet. But sin is a ravenous, savage, temperamental, wild beast. You think you can tame it, but at an opportune time, sin will come back and will demand your life. In verse 17, Samson reveals his great secret. A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And this was the last aspect of the Nazarite vow that Samson was holding on to. Now, his dedication to the Lord was completely neglected. Look at verse 18. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man, and he had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Delilah's true identity has now come out. She never loved him. She was his enemy. Samson entered the relationship with Delilah thinking of her as a lover. But she thought of him as the enemy. It is so dangerous to wrongly assess those who are for us and those who are against us. The world wants to entice us for friendship. But the friendship that the world offers is no friendship at all. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now look at verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Samson didn't even realize that he was being deceived. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So Samson, who was raised to deliver Israel from their enemies, becomes enslaved to the Philistines. Not only is he enslaved, he who had earlier mocked Delilah and the Philistines is now being mocked himself. Because... 
he failed to tame his desires. The Philistines sing their own version of the gospel in verse 23 when they say to Dagon, their God. Our God has given us Samson, our enemy, into our hands. But did you notice verse 22? Don't miss verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after he had been shaven. Samson's story is a cautionary tale. But Samson's story is more than a cautionary tale. Samson's story is the story of Samson's God, who is gracious when we don't deserve it. Samson's story is the story of God, whose last word for his people is not judgment, but always mercy. Samson's story is the story of God, who works out triumph for his people, who all hope, when all hope seems to be lost. Samson's story is the story of a faithful God who gave himself to an unfaithful people and who patiently and persistently pursues those who calls whom he calls the apple of his eyes. So God ultimately gives Samson triumph. So let's consider Samson's triumph. Samson trusted his strength too much, but so did the Philistines. In verse 25, they call Samson so that he may entertain them. So Samson, who had created such destruction from them for them, was in prison, and they say, bring him out. Set him free. So Samson now is free, and Samson had a plan. Look at verse 26. And Samson said to the young men who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars of which the house rests, that I may lean against it. Now the house was full of men and women, and the Lord of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Remember I told you last week that in Samson's story, the aspect of supplication is missing. Israel never cries out to the Lord. But Samson does cry out to the Lord. Samson cry out, cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. At the end of chapter 16, he cries out to the Lord because he wants to live. Remember that? He did not want to die of thirst. So he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord provides for him water out of a rock. But here he cries out to the Lord because he wants to die. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, Let me die, 
with the Philistines. No other judge has asked for this thus far. But Samson is willing to lay down his life for his people. Yes, his motives are not completely pure. He still wants to avenge himself, but ultimately he wants to deliver God's people. And he wants to give them victory over their enemy. Let's continue in verse 30. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. And thus, the Savior that God provided through his death accomplished the salvation of his people. It's impossible to miss the parallel between Samson and Jesus here, isn't it? There's a sense in which it's so hard to see Jesus in Samson, but at the same time, there is a sense in which it's so clear to see how Samson points us forward to Jesus. We read today, such a moving way, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. As God gives his Savior to provide salvation through his death for his people. Without understanding how Samson points us to Jesus, Samson's story is nothing but a sad and tragic story of a man with great power and potential who made a terrible decision in life. You see, apart from Christ, all we have in the Bible is moralism. But moralism does not lead us to heaven. Don't be like Samson. Don't be like Jephthah. Don't be like Gideon. So the Bible becomes a book of laws we must keep in order to be accepted by God. But this is not how the Bible ought to be read. And when we understand the Bible like this, we lose the gospel. Well, the point of this story is not, don't be like Samson. Samson points us to the judge that is greater than himself, to the judge that can deliver us not only from the enemy without, but from the enemy within. And when we're able to see Christ in Samson, Samson's story becomes a story of faith. God would provide for his people a savior who would die for them. But the enemy that he would defeat were not a few thousand Philistines or Amorites or Moabites. No, he would defeat sin. That which is killing us. He would defeat death. And he would defeat Satan. So just as Samson, the lone ranger, the one-man army accomplishes physical salvation for Israel. Christ, as he walks towards the cross, 
is abandoned by his disciples because that cross is for him and for him only. And as Christ dies on the cross, the kingdom of God is comprised of one man. The kingdom of God is found in one location, on the rugged cross on the mountain called Golgotha. And no one else is able to do what Christ did. No one else is able to accomplish salvation. Jesus, unlike Samson, lived a a sinless life. He was moral. He was obedient to the Father. He was self-controlled. But he died the death of a sinner. As he carried on his crosses, not the gates of a city, but the sin of his people. And unlike Samson, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose because his victory is not temporal, but eternal. If you go today between Zora and Eshtaol, there is somewhere a tomb where the decomposed remains of Samson lays. But if you go to Jerusalem today, there is a tomb that belonged to Jesus, but that tomb is empty. Because our Savior lives. Do you believe in the Savior who has conquered sin and death? It is through faith in Him that you can receive the merits of His death. It is through faith in Him that your sins can be forgiven and you can have the hope of eternal life. Friends, do you desire Christ? over all things. May that be true of your heart today. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that as we read Samson's story, we don't think of ourselves as morally superior or greater. Lord, Samson's experience is telling of us. But Father, thank you because you provide saviors for your people and lord we praise you because samson is not ultimately our savior because we would remain dead in our trespasses and our sins if he was but samson points us to the savior who can cause our dead souls our dead hearts to become alive We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that he alone defeated our greatest enemy. We're thankful for his death. We're thankful for his resurrection. We're thankful for the faith and for the grace that we're experiencing in him today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.